Hello and welcome to Capital Cast, a regular podcast of Capital News Illinois. I'm Jerry Nowicki. It's a little over two weeks since former Speaker Michael Madigan was indicted on 22 counts of racketeering, bribery, and other public corruption charges, and a little over one week since he entered a not guilty plea in federal court. As you know by now, if you've listened to this podcast before, the former speaker is charged with leading what the feds have dubbed the Madigan Enterprise, a wide network of power fueled by his roles as House Speaker and Ward Committeeman on Chicago's South Side, as well as his control over the Illinois Democratic Party and the 13th Ward Democratic Party organization, and his position as a partner at the Chicago law firm of Madigan and Getzendanner. Madigan, either personally or through confidant Michael McLean, who was also named in the indictment, is accused of guiding the enterprise's illegal activities to punish opponents and reward loyalists, all while generating money for him and other members of the criminal enterprise. That's according to the indictment and comments from U.S. Attorney John Lausch, Jr. of the Northern District of Illinois. Our guest today is Nancy DePodesta, who, as a prosecutor in that office from 2003 to 2015, tried cases similar to the one Madigan is facing under the Federal Racketeer, Influenced, and Corrupt Organization Act. That law, better known as RICO, was written in 1970 to go after organized crime. De Podesta now works as a white-collar criminal defense attorney at Saul Ewing, Arnstein, and Lair, and she is not involved and doesn't have any inside information about the Madigan case. But she does know how these investigations work, so I asked her what an investigation like this one entails. Here's her response. What types of crimes then did you investigate, and what would an investigation like this into Madigan and all of this stuff, what would it entail, generally speaking? So, I mean, obviously, this is, this investigation is unique from other investigations, but it entails a significant coordination from many individuals. Um, I noticed that in the government's indictments, they ha- have identified five individuals as the prosecuting attorneys on this case. Um, they would have worked very closely with the agents from the Federal Bureau of Investigation, as well as the Internal Revenue Service, and really others within each of those respective agencies. Even though we see, you know, for example, the five prosecutors, there were many others involved in reviewing the government's evidence and analyzing the charges and ultimately approving those charges. Um, with respect to, you know, the wiretap. There would be people who would be listening to those recordings real time and doing other related follow-up work. There were people drafting and obtaining search warrants and then going as teams to execute those search warrants. Uh, There were others who would go, you know, and I'm sure that obviously there would be lead case agents, um, but who would knock on doors of potential witnesses um, and, and attempt to interview them or to otherwise meet with them along with the prosecutors to interview the witness with the hopes of having them testify before the grand jury. And perhaps in some instances, just subpoena, issuing them a subpoena to testify directly before the grand jury. So I I can't even quantify a number of hours that were involved here over multiple years uh, to, to, um, to get to the point of this indictment. 
So you touched on it a bit, but um, your when you were a prosecutor, you didn't do anything on this level, of course, because no one's quite on this <laughs> level. But I think it's a rare prosecutor who did. Is there anything even comparable, or what's the biggest case that listeners might know about that you were involved in? So it's funny. There are a range of different cases. You know, I spent seven years, uh, along with a colleague of mine, Andrew Porter, investigating the Lant King Street Gang. And while that might sound very different, um, there are a lot of parallels. Um, we ultimately, in, in de, um, after seven-year investigation and multiple indictments along the way, and wiretaps and you know cooperating witnesses and sources, we charged. Uh, you know, a, a, it was a we brought RICO charges against the leadership of the Latin King Street Gang, um, including the Corona, a Supreme Inca. But in many, there are actually, you know, it, it's obviously very different substantively in terms of the acts that were committed in programs of the conspiracy. Um, but there a lot of parallels with the RICO. There were also, you know, corruption cases that I did as well. Um, there was one involving the park district and bribes in exchange for um, work to be handed out. Um, just kind of a host of different cases, including uh, white collar fraud, complex white collar fraud cases um, involving art fraud and auction fraud. Um, nothing that I will say that rises to the level of, I, I shouldn't say that rises to the level, but nothing that I would say that compares to um, going after the Speaker of the House. From there, we got into the specifics of the Madigan indictment and what type of evidence may have been collected. Two characters that are going to be mentioned in our conversation are Danny Solis and Fidel Marquez. Solis was a Chicago alderman who controlled the powerful zoning committee, and he was also working as a federal informant. According to the indictment, he used the word quid pro quo in a discussion of a deal that the feds allege was an attempt by the speaker to drive business to his law firm in exchange for favorable zoning decisions. Marquez was an executive at utility giant Commonwealth Edison who was indicted in a bribery scheme in which ComEd admitted to trying to influence and reward the former speaker with no-work jobs for Madigan Associates in exchange for legislation favorable to the company. I also once again mention Michael McLean, who at the time of the indictment had already been charged with bribery in connection with the ComEd scheme, but saw new charges in the Madigan indictment. Right. So you had mentioned the wiretaps and whatnot. Is it, it, when you look at something like this, is it clear to you that you see something and say, "Oh, this this person's been wiretapped"? Or certainly, it definitely seems like to kind of phrase it perhaps a different way. Yeah, but certainly it seems like Mike Mike McLean's phone was they had a wiretap on his phone, and I say that based on the conversations that are quoted. Um, I don't have any information that there was a wiretap on. Speaker, former Speaker Madigan's phone, but it seems very clear um, from the, you know, the different paragraphs of the indictments where they quite, where they quote conversations between Speaker Madigan and Michael McLean that there was a wiretap. Right. So, and then it's clear that Solis was uh, wearing a wire. Is there, you seem there's any indication of other in informants in this indictment? Um, Perhaps Fidel Marquez, um, obviously he's got a different angle. Um, we know that he's entered a guilty plea um, and that he 
to head, uh, I believe, were a wire and recorded individual or a recorded conversations. Um, other than the two of them, I can't, you know, I'm sure that they've talked to a whole host of witnesses, but those are two people, for former Alderman Solis and Fidel Marquez, who really kind of stand out as cooperating um, in a very wholesome way with the government. Okay. Do you think there's what do you, what do you think the impetus is here for charging McLean with new charges and Madigan in the same indictment? Sure. I mean, for, first of all, I think that there are some additional charges um, when we look at um, the role with respect to the Chinatown parcel or the transfer of the Chinatown parcel. That's something separate and apart from what we saw with the ComEd indictment. Further, um, and I think more significantly is the fact that there was a racketeering, uh, that we have a racketeering charge and that McLean and Madigan were part of a criminal enterprise um, where there were, are various acts that are brought in um, that were done in furtherance of that enterprise that's referred to as the Madigan enterprise, where Madigan was the leader and director of that enterprise and Michael McLean was the dutiful worker who carried out uh, the directions that he received from former Speaker Madigan, according to the allegations. Right. So what what's the difficulty to proving those charges in court? Um, can, sure. can Madigan simply just say McLean was going rogue? He can. He can. And I think that that will be the difficulty. I think the or the challenge for the government is really to tie m- former Speaker Madigan to what was occurring here. Um, and they will ha- do that through um, ver- various individuals, various pieces of evidence. But to answer your question in terms of what is the difficulty, and maybe this goes back to your prior question as well, in terms of why charge Mc- Michael McLean here, um, they really don't have a narrator. Um, you know, they get a lot of different, it seems like the government's case is made up of a lot of different pieces that they will ultimately tie together. Um, it seems, however, that they don't necessarily have somebody to provide context for some of the recordings um, to um, really tell a sto- the entire story. So I think that if I want to say if there's a challenge in the government's case, I, I think that's something that's that could be missing here. I'm not saying it's fatal, but it's something that I think that they would also prefer to have. So you say a narrator, you mean another source, another a cooperator, um, you know, somebody, you know, and so to go back to your question, why charge Michael McLean again? Um, perhaps one one reason would be that in the hopes that perhaps he would flip on um, the former speaker and help cooperate with the government and testify against Speaker Madigan. Um, that is certainly, I think, a hope. Do I think that it's likely to happen at this point? I don't. I think that there's been incredible pressure already on Michael McLean to, you know, to cooperate with the government. And he has declined to do so. And he's gone out on record saying that he's not going to give false statements or lie. Um, So, and when I say he's gone out on the record through his attorney, he's made those statements. From there, our conversation shifted to what the burden of proof will be for the prosecution and how Salise's quid pro quo language and Madigan's response will affect whether the charges stick. In response to Salise at a follow-up meeting, Madigan allegedly told him not to use that term anymore. Here's the direct quote from the indictment from the speaker, and I quote, 
you're just recommending because if they don't get a good result on their real estate taxes, the whole project will be in trouble, which is not good for your ward. So you want high quality representation. Okay, back to my conversation with Nancy De Podesta. So what exactly then would the, what is the, prosecution need to prove on these conspiracy charges right so basically prosecution needs to prove beyond a reasonable doubt sort of the formal legal definition of conspiracy is it's an agreement between two or more people for an unlawful purpose the agreement doesn't have to be formal it doesn't have to be in writing it could be an under it can be an understanding Um, and then they have to establish that there were acts done in furtherance of that conspiracy and here those acts would be, you know, the attempts to solicit bribes, the, perhaps the killing legislation or passing legislation um, in exchange for jobs or given to political allies. Um, so the, the indictment sets forth a bunch of different acts that allegedly occurred in furtherance of that conspiracy. Right. So... The I think it's on page 82 in the document, the quid pro quo section. Mm-hmm. Um, is is that is there major significance to that or is it I think how so. big a deal is that? I, I think it, I, I think it is definitely significant because as we, we kind of talked, referred to already, is that the government really has to show um you know, I think that part of the defense, if I could step back just a minute, is, you know, Michael Madigan might say, well, as the former speaker or as the speaker of the House, it was my duty to get legislation passed. It was my, it was part of my responsibilities to help constituents get jobs, um, to, you know, try to pass or kill legislation that he, that he thought was good or bad. Um, this, by putting in what seems to be a quid pro quo, you know, where he's going to act in his official capacity in exchange for a financial benefit, um, I think that has great significance. Well, and then the next paragraph says the next time they spoke, he said, hey, don't use quid quo, quid yes. quo you know. is Could that be used in Madigan's defense? I know the prosecution sure. used it in the indictment. but That's a great question. Certainly, if you're the defense, you're going to want to try to spin that and put it in a a different context. Absolutely. What would the legal avenue your firm would take on something like this be in Mm -hmm. in terms of the defense? Sure. And it's hard to say exactly not, you know, having full access to all of the evidence and the witness statements. Um, But certainly we would try to poke holes in the government's case. Um, And also try to explain that some of the conduct that occurred here is conduct that you would expect the the Speaker of the House to do in his capacity as the Speaker. Um, Of course, now the government's going to say, well, he was doing it because there was a, you know, to retain power, to gain power, to in exchange for a financial benefit. That's the, I think, really the crux of this here. So I think that if I'm the defense, I certainly want to try to minimize some of the statements, point to some of the things that perhaps the speaker did not say, um, certainly explain what his what it means to be the speaker of the house and what are some of the functions that are expected in, um, in that capacity. 
I also think too here that you're going to see a significant delay before this case goes to trial. I don't think that the, I am sure that there are, the evidence is voluminous. We are going to see pretrial motions. I think among those motions, it might be to keep the statements that, you know, the statements out, they're called co-conspirator statements um, or statements, um, some of the recordings, they will want to keep those out. Um, they're not gonna wanna use Madigan, perhaps McLean's calls with somebody else against Michael Madigan, if you're the defense. Right. So I wonder, are we, are the, is the prosecution trying to inch toward a plea deal or is this something like that not going to be likely in this case? I am sure that the prosecution would love a plea deal. I don't think there's, I cannot imagine seeing a plea deal in this case. You're going to be a very vigorous defense. Um, all the charges against him uh, together, can can he get 20 years for each of those for like hundreds of years in sure. sentence? Go ahead. So each of there have been various um, violations that have been charged, um, including, you know, bribery that's got a maximum sentence of 10 years, intimidation and extortion that's got five years. You see the wire fraud counts that has got a maximum possible penalty of 20 years. The conspiracy count also has a maximum possible penalty of 20 years. So yes, in theory, the total maximum penalty would be the sum of the maximum penalties for each of the charges. Um, now in reality, you know, even assuming that the speaker would be convicted, I, I wouldn't expect a sentence um, nearly that long. Finally, we discussed how developments yet unknown to us could impact the trial whenever the case gets to that point. We also talked a bit about a potential tie to telecommunications company AT&T, as reported by the Chicago Tribune, and Madigan's alleged efforts to steer business to his son, as reported by the Chicago Sun-Times. So, U.S. Attorney Lausch said, uh, John Lausch Jr., he said this is an ongoing investigation. Um, so, to what extent does the case have to go to trial on the evidence that's already there, or can if they if they prove out more? Um, I know there's an angle here that AT and T could be involved to some extent. Can this case evolve Absolutely. with more information? Absolutely, they are not stopped. The government is not limited to the evidence that it has on the date of indictment. In fact, it is very common for the government's case to improve and. Be, become an even stronger case um, as they continue to investigate and prepare for trial. To just give you an example, it's not uncommon at all, you know, for one co-defendant to flip against another co-defendant. Well, I don't expect that here. We have the trial coming up involving what I would refer to as the ComEd defendants collectively in September, I believe, of this year. Perhaps one of those individuals, if convicted, decides to cooperate with the government. To your point, um, Mr. Lausch has asked for other individuals with information to come forward. There's always that possibility that that will happen and that the government will continue to um, solidify its case prior to trial. Okay. 
So I mentioned AT&T earlier, and I want to be clear that they're they're not named in here or anything, but it looks like the Tribune did some math, and there's a yeah. sum of 22,500 uh, in the Madigan indictment that coincides exactly with a, a disclosure uh, that AT&T said was under scrutiny. So um, should we – is this maybe the next avenue the prosecutors look like they're taking? Um if that's a fair question. It could be. It could be. You know, looking at, and I read the same Tribune article that you did, and I don't think that that 22500 is a coincidence. And clearly they went to AT&T's regulatory, regulatory filings. Um, according to the regulatory filing, and we can only go on, I mean, obviously the government is looking into this. It's on their radar um, there have been subpoenas that have been issued. So this is something that they are investigating and considering. Um, at the same time, I look at what AT&T said in its filings where they are convinced that um, after internal investigation that there has been no wrongdoing. It, it still remains to be seen. Okay. So then the other angle is I, I know that sometimes had sort of implied and there was a relative noted in the indictment implied that that's uh, maybe Andrew Madigan, that yeah. Mike Madigan was steering business to his son mm -hmm. as well. Um, is there anything to read into that? Um, more names could be added to the indictment or is it just uh, leverage against the speaker? Perhaps it's leverage. Um I don't roll that out at all. I think that's very possibly leverage. Um, maybe you see more names added to the indictment. Alternatively, maybe you see other standalone indictments. Right. Are there any other hints uh, that you've read within the indictment as to what other angles the prosecution might be taking? I actually think that the prosecution in what is a very long indictment, a very detailed indictment, um, has has provided a very, um, I would say, a definite roadmap of its case. I'm not sure that there's anything here that I read. Um, of course, we're going to hear more as the case continues and motions are filed and discovery, you know, discoveries produced, motions are filed. Um, but I think that they really laid out their case in this indictment. So this has been the latest edition of Capital Cast, a regular podcast of Capital News Illinois. I'm Jerry Nowicki, and we're a statehouse reporting project primarily funded by the Illinois Press Foundation and the Robert R. McCormick Foundation. We'd like to thank our guest, Nancy D. Podesta of Saul, Ewing, Arnstein, and Lair, and we'd like to thank you for listening.